Would you take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, as you're doing that. Um, thank you for those who've responded to help the Burks family. I think that's all covered, right, Jacob? Is it all covered or pretty close to being covered? Okay. Praise the Lord for that. Those, uh, if you're looking for a way to serve, uh, I know that uh, Jeff and Michelle Kircher need a ride to the airport on Wednesday afternoon. If you're able to do that, might want to just say something to Jeff and Michelle, and uh, I know that they would appreciate uh, that help as well. I suppose that if I had a favorite narrative, a favorite story from the Bible, that would have to be what we read in Daniel chapter 3. The three main characters there in Daniel chapter 3, you remember, are these three young Hebrew men uh, who find themselves in the midst of Babylon. Babylon. They're in the midst of captivity. They're the southern kingdom of Judah, you remember, Uh, in Israel had finally fallen. It had been taken over by the Chaldean army under the direction of Nebuchadnezzar. And part of the way that the Chaldeans would deal with a fallen enemy was to deport the finest uh, from their land back to Babylon. And so they would take the finest from Israel back to the city of Babylon where they could be uh, indoctrinated into the customs and religion of the Babylonians. You probably know the story well of Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, you, you know their names better as Abednego, Shadrach, and Meshach. The, the original names of those three young boys were given by their parents in a, as, a, as a desire to be honoring to the true God. Hananiah has, was given the name Beloved of the Lord. Uh, uh, Mishael was, was uh, the one from God. And then uh, uh, Azariah the Lord is my help. Well, the Babylonians quickly changed their names in an effort to, 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 to help them to get into Babylonian society and Babylonian religion. And so Hananiah became Shadrach, which refers to the sun god. And Mishael became Meshach, who became the, uh, one of the gods of, of the stars there. And Azariah became Abednego, who was a servant of the god of fire. And they were confronted, as you know, uh, with the call for all the people to do an act of worship before a statue representative of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, anyone who was refusing to, to worship that statue, to bow down before that statue, would subsequently be thrown into the fiery furnace, which was probably basically a, a kiln, a, an oven that was used to bake bricks. Of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow before the image. They, they were not going to turn tail and run. They were not going to, to uh, turn away from being faithful to the one true God. Instead, they would decide that they would render no worship to Nebuchadnezzar. They would only worship the one true God. They would rather face the fiery furnace than worship Nebuchadnezzar and face the fiery furnace they did. And that story is brought to mind every time I come to our text this morning. Our text is from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Notice what we read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may, be, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. We come now to to your word. We want to sit in awe of you, O Lord. We want to be obedient to you. We want to know what you say to us. Speak, please speak to us. Give us a sense of this text. And let not a single person leave this place today without having dealt with this truth and appropriating it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You see Peter here. Continuing to write as we continue through this this letter, day by day or week by week, the Apostle Peter is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that stands out to me, the first thing that stands out to all of us, obviously, is is the word beloved. And, and, And what we see here is Peter being moved under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by this great and pressing love for these dear, uh, scattered suffering saints there in Asia Minor. His mind is occupied with thoughts about them. His heart is taken with great compassion as we see him addressing these people as beloved. And I can't, I I don't want to leave that word quickly. I want to, I want to camp on this for just a minute. This is a word that describes one who is in a special relationship to another. One who is highly prized or highly valued on the basis of that relationship. In this case, and the way it's written, it demonstrates the genuine love that Peter had for these brothers and sisters. Sure, it it speaks of the love of God, but I think specifically, Peter is saying here, I love you. He had a great love and compassion for these brothers and sisters in Christ, though they were separated by many, many miles. And I want to point this out to you, because... The, the words that Peter writes here, the, the, the subject that he tackles, someone might think, man, Peter, you seem kind of cold. You seem kind of cold towards these people. I mean, they're suffering. They're, and what does he tell them to do? Stop being surprised about it. This is not cold at all. Rather, this is pastoral love at its greatest and most uh, uh, evident extent. He says, you are my beloved. Knowing what you've gone through, knowing what you're dealing with, I want you to know that I I, I have a great compassion for you. You have been bestowed with love from the apostle. And he wants to once again take the subject back to the, the, the theme of suffering. We've been in this letter a long time, and you know as well as I do that this letter is replete with references to suffering. However... He is not speaking about suffering in general. He is very clearly and very pointedly speaking about suffering as a Christian specifically. He's talking about suffering for righteousness sake. Why would he be talking about suffering for righteousness sake? Because 
He knows that the Christ-exalting life that he has called them to is going to yield opposition from the world. It's going to inevitably place them in opposition with, at odds with, the world. And they are already experiencing some of these trials. They are already experiencing some of this opposition. They're already being persecuted. He's writing this to a persecuted people. And he loves them. And because he loves them, he wants to anchor their soul to their great creator. He wants to anchor their heart to to their creator. He's saying to them in this text, essentially, do not turn from him. Do not give up on him. Do not bow like everyone else is bowing. Do not deny him. But I want you, and Peter is so eager to see them glorifying God. He is eager that they would commit their lives to their creator because he's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's faithful even in the midst of this trial. What I want you to see today in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, is that Peter is providing us with a perspective that we ought to have When we will inevitably, if we live faithfully, if we live a godly life, Paul tells us anyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer what? Persecution. If you are going to live a truly godly life, you will suffer persecution. Well, what is the perspective that we are to have when it comes to suffering as a Christian? He's providing us here with the perspective or the way that we're to think about and approach the reality of suffering as a Christian. And he gives us two ways to do it. One, he says, not being surprised, but rather rejoicing. Face it, not being surprised, but instead rejoice. And then second, not being ashamed, but instead glorify. Not being surprised, but rejoicing, not ashamed, but glorifying. And then verse 19 is the application that's built right into this. The application in light of the present reality of suffering as a Christian. And and, and he wants us to give careful heed to this. He wants to draw our attention to this as we seek to draw attention to the excellencies of our God in a world filled with lesser gods. He's going to bring us right to that point of application. So first perspective is this. When you, 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 you get this perspective about suffering as a Christian, not being surprised, but rather rejoicing. Now, I don't think Peter has in mind only the trials that come as a result of political pressure, political opposition, That is in his mind for sure, and I'll explain a little bit about that in just a moment. But I don't want you to forget all of the other kinds of opposition that he's already introduced in this letter. All of the opposition that could be introduced in the home because your husband is an unbeliever or your wife is an unbeliever. All of the the opposition that could be introduced socially or at work socially amongst your friends who who are now mocking you because though you used to run with them though you used to be able to party hardy though you used to be able to get on with it that you now have turned to to your relationship with the lord jesus christ and you love him with all your heart mind and soul and now you're no longer running with them and they make fun of you 
There's all kinds of different opposition that a Christian can face. And we have an opportunity here to take a step back as we're brought to a godly perspective on these things. You know, you might not be experiencing these things in earnest. That's how things are today, especially in the Western church. But for Peter's readers, the grammatical construction makes us think that these Christians in Asia Minor were actually experiencing the suffering right now and they were really surprised by it. Something happened that made them get become surprised. They were shocked that they would be, be treated as they were. And Peter says to them, in fact, stop being surprised by the fiery trial. Now that word, that phrase fiery trial, or earlier he talked about a fiery ordeal, has people wondering if maybe Peter had in mind Nero and the great fire of Rome. You remember with Nero, he had the desire to rebuild Rome and nobody would let him do it. And so he basically set it on fire and then blamed it on the Christians uh, when, when, uh, when the heat got going, so to speak. Nero blamed the Christians for the fire, and that really became a general practice or an acceptable thing to begin to persecute, to, to insult, to mock Christians there in Rome. Christians were an easy, easy target. And so you have this growing sense of persecution against Christians politically and generally in and around when that took place, likely when this letter was written somewhere around 64 A.D., That persecution, by the way, ratcheted up to the degree when it became an actual policy of Rome to bring persecution on Christians in the late uh, and then in the early 90s. What you want to remember here is that he's not only talking about the persecution for government, but it comes from all different places. But there has been something that happened that's surprising these Christians. And it may very well be this 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 idea may very well be to that political persecution that was coming strong. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Fiery trial communicates that the ordeal was very painful. They were dealing with serious pain. But it not only communicates that it was painful, it also communicates that it was purposeful because this term fiery trial, fiery, has the idea, it it brings to mind what happens when an assayer, a, 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 what do you call him, a metallurgist or something like that, he takes the ore and he begins to melt the ore to, to bring all of the impurities to the top and he masterfully does that. He doesn't just turn it all you know, up to the highest degree and then walk away. He knows exactly the right amount of heat to, to do and he knows exactly how to, to remove those impurities. And I think that's what Peter has in mind here. The idea of testing this, 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 this assayer has the, the close and watchful eye on all things throughout the process because he highly values the precious metal. It's exactly what, what the psalmist said in Psalm 66.10. You, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. And he's giving them this sense that, that there's something going on behind the scenes here. Something going on that you're not thinking about. Some kind of greater purpose in the midst of this painful trial. And so what does Peter say? He says, stop being surprised. This isn't something that's strange. It's not something that's out of place when Christians are persecuted. Now why would he say that? Is he just being uncaring? Is he just being harsh and cold? Why would he say, don't be surprised? Because we ought not be surprised. It's exactly what Jesus told us about. 
Look with me, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter 15. I really want you to see this, John chapter 15. And we'll look at verses 18 till the beginning of chapter 16. Remember what Jesus has to say here as he's preparing to, to this, this is in the, the, the last moments, you know, of, of, of his earthly life, really. The last hours of his earthly life. And he says to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And Peter is doing the same thing in this text in 1 Peter chapter 4. He's reminding them, he's reminding us of the words of Jesus Christ. It's not something out of place when a Christian suffers. Why? Because it, it, it's actually out of place when a Christian does not suffer. When a Christian is not opposed for righteousness sake. When a Christian is not opposed for the name of Christ. That's out of place. That's not right. That's unnatural. That's strange. What's not strange is when a Christian is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now listen, we're not trying to bring this on. We're not to try to instigate persecution. But he says, living for righteousness. Now what does he mean by living for righteousness? That means exactly what Peter is calling us to, to here in this epistle. We're just always calling attention to the far exceeding excellence of God in this world and how we speak and how we live in our attitude towards everyone and in everything. We're calling attention to his attributes. We're living after righteousness. We're pursuing him. And he says, I'll tell you what that'll get you in this world. That'll get you persecuted. And that's the exact thing that we see in our Lord. He said, if they persecuted me, then what? They're obviously going to persecute you. So don't be surprised. If you live for righteousness sake. And they persecute you. But instead of being surprised. What does he say? Not being surprised. But rejoicing. Not surprised. But rejoicing. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 4 again. And just see what he says here in our text. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, 
but rejoice. Does that sound strange? I feel like at some point, Peter's a li- sounding a little bit like Charlie Brown's teacher. Well, won't, 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 won't. He's just saying things that don't make sense. What do you talk? What do you mean, rejoice? Are you speaking my language? What are you talking about here? Rejoice. Is it strange? Is it uncaring for Peter to say to rejoice in these persecutions? Well, listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice when you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's our perspective when, it, when, when we're living for righteousness, when we're living for Christ, and we find ourselves persecuted, we understand we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Remember again, John 15, 21, Jesus said, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. He's talking here, Peter says, referring to sharing in the sufferings of Christ, Suffering in the way that Christ suffered. Suffering for the reasons that Christ suffered. Now, we're not suffering in atoning suffering, as is Christ. But the hatred against Him is so great that the world is still trying to kill Him. Think of it. The the, the hatred against Christ is so great that the world is still trying to kill Him. And that's why they're coming after us. And we ought not to be surprised at that. Rather, we ought to rejoice. Rejoice because I know I'm I'm doing the right thing. Paul said, I participated in the scars of Christ. Galatians 6.17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. He told the Philippians that, I, that, that he's granted us to be able to suffer for his sake. We can become like him in his death. He said to the Colossians, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That's not to say that Christ was not somehow, his work was not sufficient. But the idea is that as if they didn't give enough to Jesus, they got to keep giving more and more and more. And he said, I'm just receiving what, what's aimed at him. I'm just, I'm not the target Jesus is. You are united with Jesus Christ. One man who went through great suffering in Romania said this, this union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only had the honor to share his sufferings. This is the suffering of Christ. And he says, rejoice because you are partaking, you're partaking in his suffering. John Huss in 1415, before his accusers lit the fire that they placed on his head, a crown of paper painted with devils on it. And he answered this mockery by saying, my Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake wore a crown of thorns. Why would I not then for his sake wear this like crown, be it ever so ignominious? Truly, I will do it willingly. The wood was stacked up. The fire was, 
was given. And he's trusting himself completely. And he says this, in the truth, as he's dying, as the flames are coming up around his body, he says, in the truth of the gospel, which I preached, I die willfully and joyfully today, singing, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy on me. Rejoice, he says, rejoice right now. Rejoice right now so that, Peter says, you will be able to rejoice that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, what's interesting to me is the word that he uses for rejoice the first time in verse 13 is the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill term for rejoice. But when he uses the word again the second time in verse 13 for rejoice, that's a, a different term. It is an intensified form that means to be ecstatic. To be ecstatic. When the second, when, when Jesus Christ comes again, there will be ecstatic rejoicing. The ecstatic rejoicing of joining him in his glory. Rejoice now. Be happy now so that you can be super happy, aboundingly happy, happy, exceedingly rejoicing in that day when Jesus comes in his great glory. Now I want you to understand something. What is it that's producing? What is it particularly that's producing this persecution? He says this, if, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, what is it? That actually brings this persecution. It's the name of Christ. It's not your little uh, annoying habits. It's not how you try to get under people's skin. It's not when you poke people in the eye. It is the name of Jesus Christ. Your representation of, through words and works, of the name of Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 5 for a moment? I just want to show you how this plays out. In the early church, Acts chapter 5, verse 40. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the, look at this, name of Jesus and let them go. Then... They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Speaking of missionaries in 3 John, John describes missionaries as those who have gone out for the sake of the name. The name, the the character, the representation, the nature, the glories of Jesus as his ambassador. We bear his name. And he says, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name, if you are mocked for the name of Christ, they bore the name of Christ. And that is what it means to be a Christian. A few weeks ago, Nathan reminded us of this, that the name Christian originally was designed by the opposers of Christianity, by the opposers of Christ, to be a a term of insult 
to those who were followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what they did? These early Christians, they took it and said, that's okay with us. It's a badge of honor. To call me after the name of Christ is a badge of honor. Don't call me Joe. Call me Christian. Let me bear the name of Christ. We're always about the name. We're representative of his name. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Peter says, if you're suffering, here's when you can rejoice now so that you rejoice then. When you're insulted for the name of Christ, you rejoice then. Our present rejoicing in bearing the name of Christ, of being insulted for the name of Christ, will increase. Our present joy right now, like those apostles in Acts chapter 5, rejoicing now, our present rejoicing right now over uh, being insulted for the name of Christ is going to exponentially increase when we see Jesus Christ in all of His glory. I, we ought to be careful of using our imagination in Bible study. It was one of the points we talked about in our class this morning, but I, I, I just sat and thought about this a little bit this morning. The joy that we will experience in heaven, a sanctified joy, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I can only imagine what that would be like. I think that, that song that was written a number a couple of years ago, I can only imagine. Man, he, he got something right. What, what will it be like? Like, what does he say? Well, I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still. The incredible joy of seeing him in his glory and having shared in his sufferings for a little while here and not turned away and not bowed the knee and then to participate fully in his and with his glory then. Wow. But the only preparation for joy then is our joy now. In bearing the name of Christ. And I think that's really what what, what the point is here. It's not just the joy over persecution. It's joy over the name. I don't take particular joy to being poked in the eye. I don't imagine I'll take particular joy of being hanged from my toenails. But I take joy in the name. The name Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that wherever we are and whatever we do, we are ambassadors for Christ. We speak of Christ and for Christ and we speak to Christ in this world. We represent him in our actions and we represent him in our words. And that's what Peter adds here in verse 15. Let me show you this here back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse, verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. He's, he's saying, no, you represent his name. You're not suffering as a criminal. Of course, that, that, that's no joy in that. Don't suffer as a murderer or a meddler. And it's interesting, why, why does he bring up this, this issue of being a meddler? A busybody. It would be like a, a gossip. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. A lot of people think that it means becoming a, a malcontent. A, a political agitator. It's one thing to bring the name of the Christ into the world and before the world to testify the truth of the gospel. It's another thing to be an agitator, a rebel. 
Don't suffer for that. Suffer for the name of Christ. What is the reason that we rejoice now? When he says you rejoice now, back up in verse 14, because you're blessed. Blessed how? What, what is this blessing? It's not blessing with bling. It's you're being blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And isn't that what we just read about in John chapter 15 and 16? Isn't that the exact same, the same thing that Jesus talked about when he's talking about his disciples facing suffering? And he says, and I'll send a helper to you. And isn't that what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 when he said they're going to they're gonna persecute you, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue, but don't worry, don't worry what answer you're going to give them, but God through his spirit is going to give you what you should say in that day? Think about what happened to Stephen in the book of Acts. As he had so diligently lived a godly life, that was his testimony. And he so diligently and earnestly preached the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people couldn't take it anymore. And they drug him out of the city to stone him. Do you understand what stoning is? We're not talking about a few pebbles. We're not talking about some some nice stones. We're talking about rocks above the head brought down crashingly upon the body of of the, the victim. And the Bible says, almost as if he's oblivious to what goes on around him, that Stephen looks up and he sees, as it were, heaven open and the Lord Jesus Christ standing there at the, in heaven waiting to receive him. And he says, don't count this against them, Lord, receive me. That's the spirit of God being upon someone, reason to rejoice because God is demonstrating through the presence of His Holy Spirit. That you're one of His. And that's why you rejoice. We don't, we're not surprised when we get persecuted. If we're, if we're about the name of Christ, we don't get surprised about that. We rejoice. That's right. That's what, we're, that's what happens. But then he says, secondly, and I'll just finish this quickly. Not being ashamed, but rather glorifying. Now, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What does it mean to be ashamed? Have you ever been ashamed of something? To be ashamed is to be disgraced, disappointed in hope, the feeling of shame, to to be embarrassed or guilty because of your actions. Suffering for the cause of the gospel, he says, is nothing to be ashamed of. To be ashamed, what, what would, why would somebody be ashamed? Well, what he's talking about here, remember Paul said earlier, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But to be ashamed in the context that Peter's speaking of here is to turn away from faithfulness to Christ. I think it's the very thing that Peter must have experienced when he was warming himself by the fire on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he he felt shame in that moment for being close to Christ, for being associated with Christ, and didn't want to have anything to do with Him. Don't be ashamed of your relationship with Christ. Don't be ashamed of suffering as a Christian. You see, the intent of of suffering 
persecution. There, he's going to tell us in chapter 5 that there is a, there's an intent. There's someone who is working behind the scenes in that. Not only is God working, but, but Satan and all of his minions are working, seeking to destroy the faith, seeking to bring you away from Christ, seeking to turn you away from Christ. So don't be ashamed. Don't turn tail and run. I imagine him speaking to those three Hebrew children. Listen, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed when you're standing there, uh, you three alone, in the sea of, a, of, of men and women on their knees bowing before the throne. Don't be ashamed. That's what he's saying. Don't be ashamed. No, this is not a sign for you to be ashamed, but it's a sign for you to be alerted. What do you mean to be alerted? When you suffer for righteousness sake, it is a sign for you to be alerted. Look, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name because for it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. You see, persecution against Christians for the sake of righteousness is nothing to be ashamed about. It's something to be alerted to. It is actually an alarm that God wants to bring judgment to being into his family. Not a judgment the way we would typically understand judgment. This judgment is not a judgment of condemnation, but is a judgment of purification. And he says, be alert to this. Don't be ashamed when you suffer for Christ's sake. Don't be ashamed when you suffer for righteousness sake. But understand, understand, glorify God. Understand that he's bringing judgment to bear on his household. God wants a pure church. God is not pleased with an impure household. God is not pleased with an impure family. And he is doing what he's doing in these days because he will not stand for the impurity of his church. His house needs to be clean, and that's what God does with this persecution. He brings purification. Any suffering that we experience, and especially the suffering of persecution, is serving the purpose of God to purify his church. And it's going to begin there. G. Campbell Morgan said this, It's a very remarkable thing that the church of Christ persecuted has been the church of Christ pure. But the church of Christ patronized has always been the church of Christ impure. The church of Christ persecuted has been the church of Christ pure. The church of Christ patronized has always been the church of Christ impure. And that's what he's saying. Judgment is. It, it alerts you to God doing something. Don't be ashamed of suffering persecution, but recognize that when that persecution comes, you say, oh, God's doing something. He's bringing about the purity of his church. He's purifying his church. He's bringing us to, to, to have done with lesser things. And then he puts this little note in here from Proverbs 11. And, and if that judgment begins there, if God is not satisfied with impurity in his church, what is he going to do with unbelievers? And that's just a really stark uh, evangelistic note to many of you here today. Because there are many of you who are not genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to consider, if God is concerned with the purity the holiness of His church to the degree that He will bring the, the discipline of chastisement through persecution. What do you think he will do to you who are left without a righteousness? 
What do you think he's going to do to you who are left without a holiness that comes from Christ? If the righteous is scarcely saved, this is quoting uh, Proverbs eleven thirty one. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? What about those who do not obey the gospel? If God will bring purification of the purification of discipline and chastisement on those who obey the gospel, what will He do for those who do not obey the gospel? And so, what He tells us here. The perspective that we have on suffering is, is we face it. We have this perspective, not being surprised, but, but rather rejoicing and, and not um, uh, being ashamed, but instead glorifying God, looking at God and saying, thank you, God, for bringing about my purity. Thankful, thank you for using this for, for my purity and for your glory in the church and in the world as people come to see you for who you really are. And the text itself, as I said, provides the the conclusion, the application for us in verse 19. This is the big so what here in verse 19. Therefore, because of all that, here's the point. And if you've stayed awake to this point, now here here you go. This is the reason that you've stayed awake, so that you can get to this point of the application. Therefore, if you suffer according to God's will, so if that rings a bell to anyone, say, yeah, I'm suffering according to God's will, What? And trust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Trust yourself to your creator. It's a beautiful picture. To the one who designed you. Trust yourself to the one who controls you, who owns you, who created you for his own. And not only created you, but recreated you in Christ to bring you into his likeness. Trust your care and protection to God. Can you imagine what that would be like if you said, I'm walking out of here today trusting my soul to a faithful creator? What would that look like? What would it look like? It would look like the same thing that Jesus does. By the way, same word. That is used here, Jesus used when he died on the cross. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. To entrust your soul to a faithful creator. A creator who is faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. How do we entrust ourselves to the Lord? I would imagine it looks like having a confidence in his sufficiency and not mine. In other words, I would recognize in the midst of my suffering that my suffering is not atoning at all. Uh, but, but His is completely, has completely atoned for my, my sin. And so entrusting myself to Him is, is having a confidence in His sufficiency and not mine. It is, it is having a confidence in His grace and not mine. It is having a confidence in His promise, and not mine. And trusting myself to, to, to the faithful Creator in the midst of suffering would look like this. Offering myself to Him as a pleasing sacrifice. And say, God, here, here, this is for You. This is for You. And what is the only pleasing sacrifice? The sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. A broken heart. A humble heart that is largely affected through times of suffering. 
and using and understanding that God often uses that suffering, even the suffering of persecution, to bring us to a point of brokenness and humility where we can confess His sufficiency and His grace and His promises and have absolutely nothing with which we cling, on which we cling, with which we rely as, as, as a reason that God should hear us or welcome us. Here I am, God, broken, contrite. Just take what I have. It's nothing, nothing compared to you. But I offer it up to you as a broken, as a, as a, as a, as a humble, a repentant sacrifice of honor unto you. And that's what God's calling us to. This text is all about, this book is all about calling us to draw attention to Christ these days. You see, our world is, our world, this is so absent in our world today. Our world is filling, filling their desire for pleasure in so many other things, with so many other things. What the world needs and what the world needs is to, to see the sufficiency, the greatness, the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that they will do that is through His church. Living a godly life, but realize the living a godly life doesn't come without a cost. It doesn't come without a cost. But we don't do that and say somehow, well, we'll just take a shot in the dark here and see what happens. We do that with a, a confidence that God's going to work His will for His glory. That's what it's all about. And trust yourself. And trust your soul. And trust your being. Everything you are everything you hope in and everything you wait on and everything you look for and trust to Christ. Uh, Peter is not done talking about suffering actually in this book. He's going to bring it up one more time as he closes out the letter because he loves these people. He doesn't have a death wish. He just loves them and he wants them to be faithful to Christ until the end, not turn tail and run. Let me close by this. If you were one of those three Hebrew young men standing in a sea of pagans before a golden statue and the music began to, to sound, would you bow? Think of that. As you consider this text today, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this text that we can meditate on. And we pray that you would write its eternal truth in our heart. That we would be changed as we go out of this place tonight or this, this afternoon. Being committed to you. Being resolved to not bow, to, to live for you no matter what. And to do so with great joy and rejoicing, not with um, any resolve or not with any uh, holding back or regret. I pray, Father, that you would work in us to be faithful here. Faithful to you, a faithful creator. That you'll help brothers and sisters as they go about living their daily lives, whether it's in their family, their workplace, their friends who want to mock them for the name of Christ. 
or even should the day come when we would know a more pronounced persecution that comes as a result of governing opposition. May we not be guilty of, of being a malcontent. May we not be guilty of being a criminal. But may our only, the only sound that we make, the only note that we sound, would it, would it be Christ and Christ crucified, buried and raised again, You'll bring glory to yourself because you're worth it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And together, all God's people said, amen.